Support for Milledgeville Matters comes from Georgia College, Georgia's public liberal arts university, providing the experience students would expect from a private college with the affordability of a public university. For more information, gcsu.edu. Thank you for tuning in to this special elections edition of Milledgeville Matters. In this broadcast, we're giving you a front row seat in the town hall meeting featuring some of the candidates for one of Georgia's two seats in the U.S. Senate. On October 26th, the American Democracy Project at Georgia College hosted Democratic and Libertarian candidates Jim Barksdale and Alan Buckley in a town hall format meeting in the old railroad depot just outside of downtown Milledgeville. Incumbent U.S. Senator Johnny Isaacson was not able to participate in this campaign event. In this program, you'll hear American Democracy Project Vice President Charles Morgan ask each candidate a slate of questions posed by members of the Georgia College Student Group and other students at Georgia's Public Liberal Arts University. Democrat Jim Barksdale joined Charles Morgan first, and in the second half of our program, Morgan is joined by Libertarian Alan Buckley. So stay tuned for in-depth interviews with the U.S. Senate candidates who are asking for your vote this November 8th. To start, I want to ask, who is Jim Barksdale, and why are you running for this Senate position? Thanks, uh, Charles. Can everybody hear me okay? And thanks, everybody, being here tonight. It's a great evening. I really appreciate everybody uh, being here. Uh, I'm running because, you know, I've spent a long time uh, in the investment business seeing that uh, what has worked for investors and for the, for the people with money has, has been such that all the roots, ro rules have been written to benefit the, the privileged few, so to speak. Uh, and it's left society behind. We've seen the middle class under siege. We've seen an increase in poverty in this country. Uh, and I've seen that basically it's been a, um, a set of policies where it hasn't been that we're all in the world, all in this together, where we all benefit from everybody coming along together. But rather, it's been a set of policies where uh, those with power and those with uh, uh, able to make the big campaign contributions get catered to by politicians. So p corporations have benefited from all these uh, approaches, and we can go into what's been happening, but corporations have made a lot of money, uh, and wages have been stagnant to declining for decades. Awesome, awesome. So uh, I, that leads me into my first area that I actually want to cover, which would be United States trade deals. Um, so you talked a lot about corporations making money off of the United States and our current policies. So trade deals are a major topic on the national stage right now. Some people believe that U.S. trade deals have led to higher unemployment and outsourcing of our jobs, whereas others believe our trade deals have strengthened us and strengthened our economy and position as a world leader. What is your stance on the current U.S. trade deals, and how do you think they are affecting the United States? Sure. Well, uh, first of all, uh, you know, you can find all kinds of studies that say different things about trade, but I think there's some common sense things that we could, should be able to agree on. One uh, is that uh, since 2000, uh, when, when China became uh, part of the, uh, um, you know, into free trade, they aren't free trade, they're basically, uh, we'll get into that in a minute, but. Uh, um, We've had about uh, $9 trillion of, of trade deficits. Uh, and this is money that, uh, you know, it, that we've had to borrow because you know, that's what a deficit means. That, that all that, that uh, uh, capital, all that money is now over in other people's hands. Uh, and we've had to borrow it, wh whether it's through our government or from our consumers. 
So we've had a policy that has led to corporations benefiting because what they wanted to achieve was lower labor cost and they wanted to bypass our standards of decency on the environment. So you can look at China's air, you can look at China's water, and this has benefited corporations because they can save by bypassing environmental costs. They have been able to save on labor costs. Um, and so when you look at corporate uh, uh, profits as a percentage of GDP, they're at near record highs historically. If you look at labor share of GDP, it's at near record lows. And this is what I'm talking about, the inequality that has left labor behind. So when you accumulate all those assets on the other side, all that income has gone over onto the other side of the world, it leads to different other cascading effects. So first of all, our debt has gone up. Uh, secondly, it means that uh, uh, the, the jobs have been enabled to leave our country. Third, it means that uh, now when corporations are making their investments, they see that they're better off to make the investments over there. So technology is moving overseas instead of being invested here. Uh, and, uh, and, and fourth, what it means is that we don't have enough demand in our economy by workers. And when you don't have enough demand in the economy, that's read, led to these other reckless policies uh, out of our monetary authorities, which is basically we create asset bubbles. And by creating, getting the stock market to go up by the monetary policy, getting houses to go up and bond prices to go up, you sort of fool people into thinking we're rich. And then they have to go borrow money, uh, and it it's creates a bubble, and then on the other side of that bubble, like in 08, uh, everybody's upside down. So I think it's a very unhealthy way to grow your economy, uh, and that's why I, th I think we need to, to turn the other direction and saying, our priority needs to be getting jobs in this country, getting people to work, and getting our wages up. Awesome. Um, so you mentioned jobs and working for our country. So studies show that the middle class currently is shrinking and that the wage gap between the rich and the poor is increasing. What are your thoughts on this and what, do you, would, you, what would you tell the middle class to ensure that their jobs are not at risk and that their hard work is indeed going to bring them the American dream? Well, I'm saying that the middle-class jobs have been at risk. That's the problem. That's what we're trying to turn the other way around. Um, and I would say that China's middle class has been growing. So there's a reason for that. You know, mm -hmm. we have not had a government that's really focused on protecting our workers and our job jobs. We've had a government that's, that's in the service of large corporations that want lower labor costs, uh, and they want to be able to avoid our environmental standards. And when that happens, uh, corporations benefit, investors benefit, but society pays a cost. Uh, there's a cost not just in not having uh, the income, there's the societal cost in education, that the state budgets are, are not strong enough to support education, that parents are not home with their kids, uh, that uh, middle class families can't afford college. Uh, this is all part of the impact of stagnant wages. And so, you know, if you look at uh, whether it's a median household income or the minimum wage, you know, they've been stagnant to declining for decades. And I think it's because we have not had an attitude of how do we make sure that we're all in the boat together, uh, that we're all growing together, but instead we've had an attitude of how do we help corporations reduce their la labor costs? How do we help them avoid environmental standards? And so this has been uh, uh, because of why we need campaign finance reform. I feel like the campaign contributors uh, who put all the big money up uh, to, to fund the politicians are, part of the, are a key part of the problem, uh, that our politicians listen to big money. They don't listen to people. 
They serve the narrow interest of, of, of profit uh, and the narrow interest of the party. And we've seen that si Senator Isaacson, from my perspective, has been a poster child for this. He voted for deregulating Wall Street, both in 1999 and 2000. He then went along with President Bush's light touch with respect to financial regulation. Uh, and all those regulations that he pulled off are regulations that had kept our financial system safe for, for, for since the 30s. Uh, and, and, and that led the economy off the cliff in 2008. And so that is part of the, the, the difficulty on the middle class when they're fighting against uh, a government that really is not representing them but is representing big corporations. Awesome. All right, so you mentioned, um, you mentioned this current U.S. election and our, our process of um, campaign finance reform um, and things that go into that. And so I just wanted to get into the conversation of what's going on with our current election. So the American Democracy Project's goal is to promote democracy. With one of our major presidential candidates right now insisting that the election system is rigged, what are your thoughts on our election process? And what are you going to do to ensure that a voter's voice matters? Um, well, I, first of all, I, I, I do think the Voting Rights Act was significant, that uh, Section 5 we needs to be reinstated, uh, that in Georgia, I know when I travel across the state, I know there is intimidation at the polls, and I know there is a dis, uh, uh, alienation when people uh, either feel like their vote isn't going to be accounted, or even worse, I think the alienation comes when they feel like it's rigged after the election. And I think it's, we need to talk more about how uh, the outcomes are rigged after the election because it's rigged because it keeps electing politicians who want to get back in office and they want to get more uh, funding and so they go to the corporations and, and they basically serve those special interests. So, so uh, that's why campaign finance reform is important to make sure people know that not just the election is not rigged uh, and, and their voice is heard in terms of showing up at the polls, but it's not rigged and their voice is heard after the, the people who are elected go to Washington. All right. That also leads me into a conversation about money and something that not only on a state level but on a national level is an issue is affordable college. So with the cost of college increasing across the United States and college debt amassing to more than $1.3 trillion, Georgia currently has a freeze on university tuition. How do you plan to keep college affordable for our students? And what do you think this freeze on tuition could uh, how do you think this freeze could impact our universities? And um, how do you think this is a, a model for other states as well? Right. Well, first, let me just say I think it's criminal that we're charging students 6 to 8% interest rates uh, when uh, the government can borrow for 0 to 2%. Uh, this is uh, making it very difficult uh, and unnecessarily so on students when they graduate. Secondly, I think the debt is, is clearly uh, higher than I would like. I, I had to borrow, I, I maxed out on all my student loans uh, uh, through my years in school, uh, particularly in graduate school. But even when I maxed out, uh, it wasn't near the kind of sums of money that we're talking about now that are required. Um, but what I would like to do uh, really in terms of answering that question is focus on the two issues of what are driving that debt up. So first of all, when, uh, when the economy is weak and not growing as it needs to, states' budgets are cut. 
uh, and that impacts education, that amounts, and that impacts tuition. So I want to make sure that the economy is growing strongly, and I want to make sure wages are up. So when, when people can't afford to send their kids to school, which has happened to the middle class, it's partly because the wages have been left behind while college costs get, 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 uh, keep rising. So part of the affordability mix is based on less making sure that incomes are rising. Uh, and finally, I would say that uh, you know I, I'm, I'm all for whatever work study programs or whatever is involved in making sure that people have a way or a pathway of service after education to, to uh, relieve themselves of the debt. Uh, I do believe that there's a benefit to, to students having skin in the game and making sure that uh, when they're in making these decisions, they're making them as prudently as possible. So uh, I, I, I have not been uh, as much of an advocate of, you know, free tuition or completely free, although I do think, uh, you know, the vocational and community colleges are largely that way. And I think it's, that's another part in terms of making sure that the education people are getting fits, you know, the, the level of skills and their interest level. I say the other thing in terms of why the student debt has been going up since 2008 is because there are not any jobs, you know? And so when you don't have jobs, people have to go to school and try to learn more, and technology's been an impact too. So, so all of these are part of, there's no one single silver bullet, but I think all of those are factors that will uh, head us in the right direction. All right, so we're talking about education. I want to stray away from higher education and go to our public education. So across the United States right now, there are proponents for the Department of Education. There are proponents against the Department of Education. Um, and a conversation really being started about how we should regulate our public schools. So I want to know, what are your stances on regulation of public schools? My main view is that I think local communities are the best places to make those decisions. I think what, from what I've seen out of Washington and, and setting some of the uh, uh, No Child Left Behind and these other agendas, uh, that you end up uh, really doing a disservice and alienating teachers. And what I want to see is better pay for teachers. I want to see uh, more days of kids in school. I want to see more programs in the schools. Uh, uh, and, and, and I'm not as, uh, I'm not as uh, interested in having Washington decide what people are learning. Awesome. All right. I want to move on to the topic of climate change. Recently, the United Nations Paris Agreement uh, was signed and passed, well, it was, I'm sorry. Recently, the United States Paris Agreement was passed, but not ratified by the United States Senate. The goal of the Paris Agreement is to regulate greenhouse gas emissions immigration, and reducing global warming. So I want to know, what are your thoughts on the Paris Agreement, and how do you think this will impact the, impact the United States? And do you believe the U.S. Senate should ratify this? Uh, I believe that uh, global warming is real. I believe it's man-made. Uh, I believe it's a moral issue. I believe we, there, we need to be doing everything we can uh, to reverse our uh, fossil footprint. Uh, I think even the oil companies now agree mm -hmm. that, uh, that it's real and we need to do something. There's no excuse for not uh, leading the world in this and we will be better off for it and so will the world. So I'm all for doing everything with respect to uh, solar, wind, uh, and nuclear to, to reduce our uh, fossil footprint. All right, um, and currently there is a uh, big topic right now in uh, North Dakota with a pipeline going across Native American land. And there has been protests not only from the indigenous people, but also from uh, US citizens as well. Um, and many of the 
this protest has led to arrest of these people um, and caused all sorts of problems in that sector. So what do you think about this pipeline going across North Dakota, specifically going across Native American land? Do you think that we should move the pipeline to, pipeline to a different area? Do you think that oil pipelines are becoming a problem in the United States? Well, uh, I can't say that I have studied this specific one. I know that in Albany they've had the same issue, and these are, these are both their trade-offs, but also it's a matter of is the voice of the people being heard. And I know that the, the one in Albany is one where, of course, the pi pipeline gets routed through the areas where people are most vulnerable, mm -hmm. where they have the least voice. So it goes through the African-American communities. It goes through those areas uh, where people are already uh, mostly uh, most impacted. So I think the issue that people face is, you know, it's, it's your pipeline that you're benefiting, for, but we're not, we're not benefiting. We're paying the cost and you're getting the benefit. Uh, and my guess is that's the same thing in this situation. So I think you need to, we need to make sure that uh, the voices are heard uh, and those types of uh, trade-offs are properly made. All right, so I wanna move back to the current state of the U.S. government. Currently, there is an empty seat on the bench of the United States Supreme Court. The Republican Party has stated that they will not host a hearing for President Obama's appointment, causing the longest stall for a federal judge appointment ever. Do you believe President Obama's appointment should get a hearing? And how do you believe having this empty seat is impacting our Supreme Court? Well, um, this is another symptom of, uh, of uh, our senator uh, pretending like he reaches across the aisle, but actually serving the narrow interest of his party over and over again. Uh, he's done that ever since the, when President Obama was first elected. Uh, Senator McConnell said our number one job is to make sure he's not reelected. Uh, and, and Senator Isaacson has gone along with that all the way uh, to even now so continuing to support uh, Donald Trump. Uh, so I, I don't think uh, uh, Senator Isaacson has uh, been uh, straight with people in terms of how he actually operates. Uh, but in terms of the particular, so, so of course I, I think that it's, a, it's unconscionable that someone who has sworn an oath to uphold the Constitution, the Constitution says the President is going to put forward um, uh, this, uh, the nominee and the, and the Senate is going to have the hearing, uh, that they then uh, uh, say, oh, well, I, I had that oath to the Constitution and I'm a big constitutionalist because I'm a conservative Republican, and then say, oh, well, I'm not going to do it now because my party doesn't, tells me not to. So I think this is another case of you know, hypocrisy or, or double talk that comes from, from uh, Senator Isaacson. In terms of the 5-4 decisions, uh, that's why the election is so important. Uh, and I hope everybody knows that, uh, you know, this is going to be, there are going to be a number of court, uh, Supreme Court judges appointed in this next term. Uh, and we can go one direction or we can go another. Uh, and uh, I have found uh, most of those 5-4 decisions to be very painful. All right. My final topic that I want to cover tonight is terrorism and immigration. With terrorism on the rise in the Middle East and the presence of ISIS becoming an increased danger to the region, many people are flocking to other nations as refugees to seek protection from the calamity. Some people see these refugees as a threat to the American homeland, while others believe it's our place in the world to provide assistance for these people. What is your stance on immigration from the Middle East? Right. Well, so first of all, again, I think the, the fact that we have this uh, chaos and this turmoil in the Middle East is another sign of Senator Isaacson's reckless policies on foreign policies. Uh, I oppose the war going into the war in Iraq. 
Uh, before it, we did it, I was very vocal all through the war, uh, and it still, frankly, isn't over. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's uh, uh, pick your number, <laughs> Alan, but uh, it's cost us trillions of dollars, in my view, uh, all in costs. You can say you're 800 billion, or I'd just say trillions are all in. Uh, but uh, it's been a very uh, difficult and, and, and war, so uh, and, and unnecessary, and it's created this chaos. So now, with respect to uh, the particular issue with uh, refugees, the ones in Europe, what you have is unvetted situations where people are getting on boats and going across, and you have no idea. Uh, but uh, but certainly in in our case, these are people that are very highly vetted by the FBI, by the um, Homeland Security, Department of Defense, State Department. Um, and, and they're 90% women and children. Uh, and I'm not concerned that we uh, are, are unable to welcome these people to our shores. We're a nation of immigrants. The world looks to us to be the moral leader. Uh, and I think we certainly have the capacity to make sure that we're safe from these people. All right, so with that said, how would you approach the issue of dealing with ISIS in the Middle East? There are sides that say we should uh, train officials from other nations around it to have them deal with their own problem and we protect our own interests. There are also people who say we should go in and we should uh, essentially knock out ISIS. And um, as, as you previously stated with the previous war, that's basically what we did. Um, so what do you, how do you think we should tackle ISIS being such a, a large organization that has really popped up very quickly? Right. Well, we followed the advice of those people once who said, let's go in and the, the, our presence is going to fix it, but let's don't do it twice, you know, and let's learn from the mis mistake. Uh, and Senator Isaacson doesn't seem to have learned from the mistake. He continues to call for more boots on the ground. Uh, in Iraq, in Syria, he's even called for uh, use of uh, um, Article 5 of NATO to go into Crimea. Uh, or, and uh, uh, I think that this is totally the, the wrong way. Uh, this is a situation where, just like with Vietnam, you, this can only be won by the people over there. This is their battle. We can say who we want to help, who we want to support. But again, I think it's reckless uh, for us and, and frankly counterproductive that we simply create more enemies and more terrorism when they see us taking the lead. So I support the approach that President Obama has followed here of supporting the uh, Iraqi government and the Kurdish uh, uh, forces uh, in, in, in rolling back ISIS. All right, and some of the problems with um, policies of the Middle East right now is that interest from other governments, such as the Russian government, conflict with interests of the United States. Do you think if we were to keep doing the approach we're doing right now, where we have hands off and we assist, um, do you think our interests would go to the side and Russian interests would be um, basically pushed? And how would you tackle that? How would you plan on working with other nations to ensure that our interest will still be followed. Well, we cannot have global primacy over every decision of the world. Uh, I am all for working with uh, the allies, uh, whether it's the, the Iraqi allies. I'm working for, I believe we should be working with other partners there. We shouldn't be going it alone. When I hear those words, coalition of the willing that Senator Isaacson uh, throws up there, it just reminds me of the whole coalition of the so-called willing uh, um, back in Iraq. Uh, and, and I believe that we can work with Russia. I believe that, uh, that, that uh, we can work for similar interests there, which I think everybody has an interest in stability there. All right, and my final question that I want to ask on terrorism tonight is, 
currently there is a growing fear among the United States that homegrown terrorism is becoming a problem. What would you say to prevent homegrown terrorism such as mass shootings um, that we have seen popped up across the United States, whether at universities, schools, um, public places such as movie theaters? Well, uh, if you're talking about the, the terrorism that's coming from the issues uh, with respect to the Middle East, uh, you know, I, I think that our involvement and our continued uh, uh, boots on the ground and our leadership there uh, is part of the cause of the terrorism. That's part of the blowback of our efforts there. If you want to talk about in terms of our overall culture, uh, you know, we do have a culture that has uh, tended to too much, too much violence. Uh, and I think that we need to, uh, you know, be turning as much as we can away from that, that our kids, whether they're playing uh, games that are violent or whether we're having it in our own speech or in our own hearts, all of those are things that are counterproductive uh, for uh, the path forward. I, you know, I think everybody knows that I, you know, spent a number of years listening to Dr. King's uh, sermons uh, and uh, his his speeches, and have been very moved by them. And I know that one of the he, back at the time when he was talking uh, and preaching, uh, you know, the atomic bomb was a big issue. And what do we do about the atomic bomb? And he said, you know, I'm less worried about the atomic bomb that science has accreted than I am about the atomic bombs that is in each of our hearts when we hate each other, when we don't view each other as part of the same common uh, uh, humanity together. And that's what I mean by us all being in this together. So I think we, uh, we can talk about terrorism in the Middle East and our actions over there that can create that or excite, exacerbate that. But I think we also have to look at our own hearts and make sure that, that we are looking at each other uh, through uh, caring eyes, not through the eyes that I hear from Donald Trump of, of whether uh, division with respect to um, uh, whether you're Muslim, whether you're you know, a woman, whether you're a Mexican, whether you're an immigrant, whether you're an African-American. These are all words that divide and diminish our country and pull us back from the country that we all uh, believe in and, and hold as our ideal. All right, um, and so I want to lead into one final question tonight because we have a little bit more time. So your conversation on caring, that uh, kind of inspired me to think about the current state of U.S. relations between police and the black community. Right. So I want to know, what is your stance on ensuring that our police forces across the United States are providing services for our communities and that things like racial profiling aren't happening and that we're all working together to create right. a better society rather than what some people see right now as being pitted against each other. Right. Well, we've got to be clear that the, the police officers face a very difficult situation every day. They place their life on the lines. Uh, I, I want to make sure that I uh, place that as uh, completely honoring that service. It's a very difficult um, um, job uh, and they, their lives are on the line. Um, at the same time, um, when you uh, are not involved in pursuing a, an approach that's more community policing, uh, or when you have um, this, you know, um, uh, maybe unintended uh, prejudice in your heart uh, that leads to profiling, um, that, that that can lead to, and, and you have not developed a relationship with your community. These are all things that lead to racial profiling. Uh, again, Donald Trump has talked about uh, what is stop and frisk, mm -hmm. and, and we know what that means, you know, in law and order. And, and you know, and it's personal with me. I, I have to tell you that, uh, you know, I, uh, my family, um, you know, I have an African-American niece and nephew, uh, and my nephew uh, attended college at NYU, and uh, 
on two occasions, uh, he had situations that, that uh, most people would not have had an issue with, but because he was black, uh, he, you know, he was robbed, uh, and instead of when he talks to them, says I was, goes to the police and says I was robbed, uh, they start profiling him and saying, well, you must have been out dealing drugs. You know what I mean? And that he's not heard and listened to as his story as being an honest story, but rather he's profiled, and, and, and I don't think that would have happened to me. Awesome. Well, that is all the time we have tonight. Once again, I want to thank you for being here, and thank you for having this conversation with us. All right. Thank you. Stay tuned, because after this short break, we'll return to the American Democracy Project candidate town hall meeting for U.S. Senate. Up next, moderator Charles Morgan will talk with libertarian Alan Buckley. So I want to start off with the same question that I've asked every candidate. Who is Alan Buckley, and why are you running for this position? <clears throat> I'm an attorney CPA. I went to law school at UGA. I'm married. I have two kids. I live in Smyrna, Georgia. And uh, <clears throat> this is actually the third time I've run for U.S. Senate. And the first time I ran, there were two reasons. First was the war in Iraq, mm -hmm. which I thought was a fraud from the get-go. I think it took care of Dick Cheney and his friends and uh, made, made a mess for the rest of us. It, I think at the time, I, I can remember on, watching on CNN the U.S. troops blowing through Iraq, and we all knew that was going to happen. The question was it going to take a few days or a few weeks. Or, but I knew it would make our terrorism problems worse. I knew it would, a lot of innocent people would die, and I knew it, it would make our financial problems worse. And I've been studying the finances of our government for about 13 years. And uh, our, the outlook is just flat out grim. Uh, 2007. The GAO, that's the audit arm of the federal government, said it foresees our nation's debts spiraling out of control. Well, back then, nine years ago, the total debt was less than $9 trillion. Now it's about $20 trillion. We more than doubled it in nine years. Okay, now most people hear $20 trillion, it's like $20 trillion, $20,000, twenty. <laughs> what's the difference? And I understand when you get in those big numbers, you, you kind of lose perspective, but let me give you some perspective. We've had these really low, low interest rates the last few years. If we went back to just normal Treasury bill rates of 5%, which is more of a historical norm, we'd have to pay a trillion dollars of interest expense a year on our federal debt. Well, the total tax revenue, the total federal tax revenue last year was 3.3 trillion. So if you divide one by 3.3, you get 30%. So if we went back to ordinary rates, 30% of our revenue would have to go to interest expense. So imagine if you made uh, $50,000 a year and 15,000 of that <clears throat> was necessary to pay interest on your debt. You're, you're finished. I mean, an individual can file bankruptcy, but uh, if our country collapses financially, it's gonna be a catastrophe. It's, people thought 2008 was bad. This thing is gonna be like a tinderbox blowing up. And there are all sorts of experts, this isn't me speaking, uh, at the, fi at the fi federal government, people who work there now, who used to work there, and who study the finances, and they all say the same thing. This, they use the word unsustainable. That's a big term. But uh, I email every once in a while again, a guy named Gene Sterling, who was the, the former assistant deputy secretary of the Treasury. He wrote a book two years ago called Dead Men Ruling, and it's about how entitlements were put into place years ago, and now they're 60 to 70 percent of government in the current Congress has no guts to 
change them. But he said basically he sees this ending in a global depression through a dominoing effect of the whole world is tied to the stability, financial stability of the U.S. And if it, uh, if it collapses, it's just, it's going to be like 2008. It's going to be a very quick thing, but it's going to be ugly. Uh, I emailed him several weeks ago. He, his, his last expression was eventually the system just blows up. And the thing is, people know, don't know when it's going to happen. And, uh, you know, 2008 we had this event where our debt level was in, in this range. Now it's here. And over the next 13 to 15 years, we're going to add 13 more batches of baby boomers getting Social Security and Medicare, and the debt's going to be up to here. And I want to point something out. I was in a debate last week with Jim and Johnny Isaacson. People need to understand, when Hillary Clinton says, my programs are not going to make the numbers worse, what she means is, okay, we're going to add another 8 to 12 trillion of debt additionally over the next decade. She's just saying, I'm not going to add more than that 8 to 12 trillion. So people need to understand, you know, I know a lot of people have a hard time relating to this. So the main reason I'm running is to help get the nation's finances in order. And I actually came up with a very relatively simple tax system that the current system is very complicated. I'm an attorney and a CPA, so I deal with it all the time. But it's very simple. Everybody can understand it. It's uh, reasonably progressive. It uh, makes everybody pay some tax. It uh, discourages sending jobs overseas, discourages, discourages sending corporate headquarters overseas, um, and it prevents double taxation. I, you know, I think I really like it, and I think if people would, if we would get to understand it, they'd love it. I mean, but a lot of people who work in the tax field, to be honest with you, don't like it because it's so simple that it would, they'd lose a lot of work over <laughs> it. I, mean, I actually sent it to Tax Notes magazine, and they were going to publish it, and then the last minute they backed off, and I... They never told me why. I don't know if it was, I thought maybe it's a little too political, but then again, I thought, you know, their readers aren't going to like this because it's, but anyways, the, another reason I'm involved is the regulation. I got a case up in D.C. right now against the federal government, and uh, there's excessive regulation. I mean, uh, what's happening, just so you know, is, um, you know, there's been gridlock in D.C. In my opinion, when there's gridlock, you either cut a deal with the Congress or you don't. If you don't cut a deal, the current law remains in effect, and you have to live with it. But what's happening is, you know, under President Bush, we had the, uh, he had the um, signing statements where he said, I know this says this, but I'm not going to follow it. Well, that was sickening. But what's happened under the Obama administration is you've had a lot of executive orders, but you've had regulations issued that basically take the English language and twist it all different ways to say something other than what it says because they don't want to go through Congress. The case I have involves charging tax return preparers every year to prepare returns and the problem is there was no law that ever, there's no law that allows that. There were 10 bills roughly over 10 years that tried to make this happen. They couldn't make it happen, so they just said, oh, President Obama, when he got in office, he hired the former CEO of H&R Block. He came in and said, I'll write regulations and we'll just do it that way. The problem is there's no legal authority, so he ended up in court. And the problem is, let me tell you the real problem with this. Here's all the regulations that get put in, okay? Here's the number that get challenged. This other group be effectively become laws because they can't be challenged realistically. I, I'm in a class action. We don't get paid unless we win. But like a lot of these EPA rules will be fought by the Southern Company, and they've got money to pay lawyers to fight it. But you know, between those things that can be paid for and then class action, you've got this group of things out here that really you can't fight. And it's sad because they become effectively laws. And that's wrong. So, and the last reason I'm, I'm running is you know, our state you probably don't know this. I didn't know until I ran. But we rank 37th out of the 50 states in terms of per capita return on income tax dollars sent to D.C. Uh, 
South Carolina, our next door neighbor right across the border, ranks first. They get eight times what we get back in terms of per capita return on dollars sent to DC. And I think that's a lack of muscle. I mean, Johnny Isaacson and, uh, and the rest of the contingent up there isn't getting the job done. And, and uh, you know, we've got to get people up there who know how to negotiate. I'm not Donald Trump, and I'm not going to go there. But know, know how to negotiate and get deals and get our state's fair share. And we're not, we're not getting that right now. So, uh, and you know, Johnny Isaacson's running in his 70s. He, he's never dealt with any of these problems. He's never proposed a solution to excessive regulation. I have a bill that's two pages long on my website. It's plain English that says basically, you're the head of an agency and you put in a regulation and somebody successfully strikes it down in court. And they prove that there was there, that, that, that there, there, was, there was lacking substantial justification for the regulation, which means it was very unreasonable what was done. The government's liable for the legal fees whoever challenged it. Well, I say make the head of the agency liable. They signed off on those regulations, so they're supposed to stay within the box that Congress gives them. Congress gives them a box of authority. But what's happening is they're going outside the box and just doing whatever they want. And so that's an abuse of our legal system. So I, I know I went on and on. I'm sorry. Well, you actually hit some topics that I want to hit here tonight. Uh, and so the first thing that I want to touch on is regulation. So I want to specifically talk about regulation within climate change in the uh, green industry. So the United States, uh, the United Nations Paris Agreement aims to regulate greenhouse gases, immigration, and reducing global warming. Mm -hmm. The United States has signed this agreement, but has not rat ratified it through the US Senate. What do you think about the Paris Agreement? Do you think it's too much regulation? Do you think that it's an effort that will get us to be more green? And what impacts do you think this will have on the United States? Well, let me just say this. Uh, as someone who's working full time and has you know, to fight the federal government court, induce tax returns, believe it or not, I haven't studied the Paris Agreement. I have studied the TPP. Mm -hmm. I've studied a number of the trade deals. Um, if elected and I have a time to breathe, I will uh, obviously study everything that comes under my nose. But um, uh, I know I could change the subject and not talk about it, but that's the reality. Uh, I, you know, I work very hard. I got to go to a meeting for my daughter at 8.30 in the morning tomorrow. Um, but believe me, uh, I'm AV rated by Martindale Hubble, highest in ethics and work quality uh, for attorneys for 20 straight years. But I believe in protecting the environment. You know, a lot of people think libertarians are financially conservative, which I am, and socially tolerant, which I am. But I do believe in protecting the environment. I'm a big environmentalist. What, you know, what I enjoy to do is go, go going for runs. I have a nice walking trail near where I live. I either walk or run in there. And so I'm absolutely in favor of protecting the, the environment. It starts at the federal level because you have, you know, water traverses across states, air you know, pollution travels through the air, and so you can't just say we're going to make this a state thing. Um, and I do believe the, the planet is warming. To, I believe to some degree it's man-made. To what degree, I'm not sure. But let me say this. I've got an article on my website from Time Magazine where it said in, in the decade in, in 2010, the planet warmed 0.09 degrees Fahrenheit, which is much less than the average over the previous six decades, which was 0.2 degrees Fahrenheit. So to what degree is it man-made to some degree? But you know, I, I came up with a really, um, I think what's a really good idea in 2008, and it's on my Wikipedia page. I didn't ask anybody to create a Wikipedia page for me. But, <laughs> well, but what, it, 
what it says is, you know, historically we had the gas tax, which in my opinion is the best tax we've ever had because if you don't drive, you don't pay it. If you drive, you pay it, and the more you drive, the more you pay. The bigger the vehicle, the more damage you do to the, to the road, so the more you pay. So it's really, an, if, you, if, you, if you want to talk about taxes, it's the best tax there's been. But we got the situation where people are going to, um, you know, alternative fuels and going to electric vehicles and mixes between electric and gas. So what I believe we need to do is go to more of an energy tax where we, the tax varies based on how dirty the fuel is. And an example is hydrogen fueling is completely clean. So if you run a vehicle on electricity that's sourced entirely from solar, hydrogen, um, uh, or uh, you know, wind power, there's no tax. On the other hand, if you're burning um, diesel fuel, that's going to be at the, you know, or coal or coal-based electricity, you're going to have this spectrum. And we can trace this all back to the, the manufacturers. So basically, you're driving up the cost of dirtier fuels and bringing down the cost of, of uh, lower cost fuels. And one of, the, one of the coolest things is my father used to work for NASA. And back in the 70s, he told me they were flying, he lived in, we were, lived up in Ohio, in Cleveland, they were flying planes. They used to burn hydrogen going over Lake Erie. And hydrogen works, and it's really neat. The problem is it's really hard to separate hydrogen from another molecule. And, uh, and that's where the energy, you know, if you, can, if you can overcome that nut, there's so much hydrogen in the universe, and it's, it's completely clean. I mean, when you, when you burn hydrogen, all, you, all that comes out of the engine is steam. So there, there, there are a lot of car companies working on that, doing different, via different mechanisms. So if that ever comes through, that's, that's the, you know, that's the, um, the ultimate, the ultimate solution for clean vehicles anyways. Something that you mentioned that I want to touch on in the next subject is uh, the current state of minimum wage and jobs in the United States. So studies show that the middle class is shrinking and that the wage gap between the rich and poor are increasing. What are your thoughts on this, and what would you do and tell the middle class to ensure them that their jobs aren't at risk and that their hard work will bring them the American dream? Well, let me just say this. Uh, in 1996, I wrote a letter to the editor of the AJC, and I, I was a regular letter writer for years and years. <laughs> um, and I basically said, you know, because, because Bob Dole was not going to raise the minimum wage, I was going to vote for Bill Clinton. And they published it, and I voted for Bill Clinton, um, who I thought actually is one of our best presidents. I mean, some people may differ, but um, I really thought he was a good president. Um, and, you know, but since then, I've thought about it more and more, and um, I think the federal government should get out of the equation altogether. I think the states should be allowed to set minimum wages if they want to, but most of the minimum wage jobs go to students, um, you know, people right out of school. So I'd, I'd rather let to see the free market flow at the federal level, get the federal government out of that. I'm in favor of generally reducing the powers of the federal government, which I think are excessive. And if the states want to do that, that's fine. Um, the, the, you know, a lot of my positions are let the states do it. Like for dr drugs, we were in this debate a few days ago. I, I think the best solution there is let the states handle it. They all have to balance their budgets. They'll all do different things. They'll learn from each other. They'll gravitate towards best practices. So, um, but you know, one thing people don't realize, um, I co-wrote a book in 2014 with a guy named Jonathan Godby. He's got a PhD in finance. He's a professor at Georgia State. And he also helps me in my campaign. And it was called Why Work? It's called How the Federal Why Work? How the Federal Entitlements and Tax Systems Equalize Income and Wealth. 
what we discovered in the book is uh, the way the entitlement system and the tax systems work together. Let's take a family of four. Your income goes up until you make about $29,000 between <clears throat> your actual cash you get for working and your entitlements and your tax benefits. And that gets you up over $50,000 of total at $29,000 of cash and actual benefits. After that, you start losing the entitlements and, and, the, and the tax benefits. And you actually see a diminishment in your standard of living until you make more than $50,000. We call this the ditch in here, where your income goes up, but your standard of living goes down. And to me, that's, that's criminal. It's insane. And you know, some people have figured out the system and are sitting there at $28,000 a year um, and, and, and content. And there's a lot of places you know, I don't, I, in, in other states where people have worked the they got, they've got the federal and the state numbers combined. I've heard this in upstate New York where these people just, they get to a certain point in the year and they stop working because they know if they make more money, they're going to have a decrease in their standard of living. And that's insane. So, um, you know, I'm also, let me say this, I'm against illegal immigration. I know Jim's for a pathway to citizenship. And Johnny, although he's, he'll deny it, has been for amnesty. Um, there's a study on my website that was, that, that I pulled out of the Wall Street Journal, I believe. And it basically showed when Arizona got tough on illegal immigration, a lot of them went elsewhere. And what, what that did was it drove up wages for lower income people because of the supply and demand, there was less supply and wages went up. So if we start enforcing our immigration laws, um, and I'm not for mass deportations, but if somebody's picked up on, you know, DUI driving under the influence, I think they should be deported in a, in a humane way. If they want to take their family with them, that's fine. But I also think we need to let more people in annually. We've had uh, quotas for decades where we've let in 140,000 business people, 400, I think it's 80,000 or 420 family members. And uh, but we don't have any special rules for students. We have a lot of foreign students that come here and excel. There are no special rules for them. They have to go back home, and if they want to get in, they have to go through these quotas. So I think we should let in at least 50,000 foreign students who come here, excel, they've been vetted, they've excelled, they want to stay in our country, they'll help grow our economy. So. All right, so that, that makes me think of the topic of immigration. And so currently, there's uh, an issue with immigration from the Middle East across uh, most of Europe, and it's a concern to the United States. So. These people who are flocking away from the Middle East, away from terrorism and ISIS, um, some people believe that these refugees are a threat to our homeland and could become a problem. While other people believe we have to go out of our way and help these people and find a way to provide assistance for them. What is your stance on immigration specifically from the Middle East? Well, I think most of those people are heading into Europe, obviously, and Germany's taken more than its fair share. It's just, you know, historically, other than recently, with Germany taking in a huge number of refugees, the U.S. has allowed more people in every year than other countries. We've had a more reasonable immigration policy, even though these numbers have been frozen for decades. You know, if, if we can vet people completely, I'm fine with taking a reasonable number. Um, but again, we've got all these people that have come over from south of our border illegally. So um, if people could be completely vetted, I mean, completely, I'd be willing to. I think we should take a reasonable amount, but uh, if they can't be fully and completely vetted, don't allow it. All right, and you mentioned the border, so um, what would you do to secure the border and prevent this illegal immigration? Well, you know, this theory about building a wall along the whole border, 
the reality is if we don't get our finances in line, uh, that wall is going to be there to keep people in instead of keeping them out because people are going to be trying to get out of here uh, rather than stay in um, because it is going to get ugly. Um, but in reality, I mean, if we use E-Verify uh, and successfully use that, um, let's face it, if the jobs are not here, people will be more apt to, uh, to go back. And, you know, I, I, I kind of feel like, first of all, the Republicans are largely responsible for a lot of the illegal immigrants in the country because 2001 and 2003, they cut taxes twice. Meanwhile, the spending is going through the roof, okay? They, the spending increased on average 6.8% a year, and uh, it just was going like this. So that creates the need for borrowing, and, they, and huge debt was taken on. Johnny Isaacson's voted for over $7 trillion worth of debt. He'll, he'll try to deny it, but it's completely true. I've got an article from the AJC Truthometer on my website that lays it out. And, uh, you know, so I don't believe in a, maybe there are a few places on the border where, a, where people regularly come over where a wall does make sense. But, you know, a lot of these people came up just to make money. And a lot of it goes back to Mexico or South America, wherever they're from. So, you know, and a lot of them went back when the, when the work dried up. So I, I don't, I, don't, I have a hard time finding sympathy for them, to be honest with you. Now, let me say this, a lot of them are just decent people, but they're still here illegally. All right. I want to link that to trade deals. There's some conversation that's saying that uh, part of uh, our problem is that United States trade deals have led to outsourcing of companies in one direction, and then on the other direction, it's led to uh, uh, immigration crisis because uh, immigrants are trying to go into other places and fill the vacuums that uh, we have. And on the other hand, you have people who are saying that our trade deals are helpful, that they benefit us, and that they don't cause this movement of labor. Um, so what are your stances on the United States trade deals? Well, what's interesting is you go on, I've studied the trade deals because, you know, Jim Barksdale's made it a big issue in the campaign, and no one's made a big deal of the Paris, uh, <laughs> you know, climate uh, um, proposal. But um, I've studied these trade deals very thoroughly, and um, I like Jim very much from what I know him, but I, I, and I'm not trying to back Johnny, but I disagree in general with Jim because what happened was NAFTA came in First of all, let me just make it clear. I'm, and generally, I'm in favor of free trade. The only, the only exception is when there's currency manipulation and China, whether you like Trump or not, is right that they've manip manipulated their currency. Other countries do it. And the way they do that is if the value of your currency goes down, it's easier to export. If your currency goes up, it's harder to export. So you can make your economy go better if you have ch a cheaper currency relative to other currencies. So, um, but <clears throat> what happened is, you know, once we passed NAFTA, Mexico was part of NAFTA. So all the low-cost jobs went to Mexico with NAFTA. So you heard this, remember, uh, um, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, who ran for president in 92, Ross Perot. Uh, all this, he's going to hear this sucking sound down in Mexico of jobs. Well, to, to a degree that there was sucking, it's done. And we've had tr some trade deals since then with Peru and Chile and uh, Central American countries. And really, because they're in the nature of Mexico in terms of low cost, those are really insignificant treaties. They really don't do much and didn't do much. The only one that I think Johnny signed off on that I thought was a problem was 
permanent normal trade relations with China because China is a troublemaker in my opinion for the most part. Uh, they do manipulate their currency and that's, that gave them permanent normal trade relations which is a, uh, you know, a high standing that was basically made per permanent by the, by the definition of, of, the, of the word, of the term. Um, so I think that was a mistake. We did lose some manufacturing jobs to that, but let me say this. Um, there's an article on my website that says mainly due to fracking, it's going to be cheaper to manufacture in the U.S. than it is in China by 2018. Right now the differential is not that great. We've already added a million manufacturing jobs since 2010. I think we're going to see a lot more coming to the U.S. As, the, as long as we keep fracking, I mean, I know a lot of people don't like fracking, but as long as it's done in a responsible manner, mm -hmm. I mean, it brings down the, the, the cost of, you know, manufacturing in, in so many ways, and I think that will really help us. Um, as far as the TPP, that's the Trans-Pacific Partnership deal, um, you know, there are, if you look at these studies, some of them say it's the worst thing in the world, others say it's the greatest thing in the world, you don't know, you know who you can trust. Well, finally, I came across the um, U.S. International Trade Commission, which is a federal agency, and they studied it, and I have the most confidence in them, and they basically said, overall, it's a positive, it will be a positive to the U.S., but not a huge positive. Mm -hmm. um, they, they said, overall, the U.S. will gain jobs on a net basis. There will be a very small reduction in manufacturing jobs, but, it, but it's more than offset by service jobs and, uh, and other jobs. And it said that the biggest winner of all will be agriculture. And that's, you know, for Georgia, that's big um, because it basically takes tariffs off agricultural products. And uh, so I think our state would be a big winner under TPP. Um, and again, President Obama's behind it. And I assume this U.S. International Trade Commission is, is what it theoretically is, which is unbiased and fair. And, and, um, but it's, I've got, I've got a, some of it on my website if you want to read it, the highlights. And I actually have it here in a notebook, but I don't think you want to get in that much detail. But if anybody wants to ask about it afterwards, I've got, I've got it here. So. All right. And then the final issue I want to touch tonight, we've talked about this a little bit, um, but I want to get more in depth in, about terrorism in the Middle East. So currently ISIS is a big threat that, um, to the Middle East in general, and some people believe is in becoming an increasing threat to the United States. How do you plan to um, combat ISIS? Um, do you believe that we should do what some proponents say and encourage the nations around the Middle East to combat ISIS and help them in that effort or go in ourselves and do it? Well, I, in, in, in general, I'm in agreement with Jim Barksdale on this. I, <clears throat> I think the wars in Vietnam and Iraq were huge mistakes. Um, the negatives far outseated exceeded the positives. You know, our, our country's been in more wars than any other country since World War II. You gotta realize a lot of this is for people to make money. I mean, Dick Cheney with General Dynamics and, uh, excuse me, Halliburton, I'm not sure if he's affiliated with General Dynamics, but he probably is. And, uh, but, you know, his seat was warm the whole time that war was going on over his board seat. And, uh, you know, I, I really think that um, we need to be very um, prudent when we get involved in internal affairs. And let's face it, the, 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 Mid, the Middle East is just a quagmire. Mm -hmm. And you know, the Russians learned their lesson in Afghanistan, but now they're back. And my wife is originally from Russia, she's from Moscow. So she has all these Russian friends and, and their take on it is, you know, things over there are tough, 
And uh, this is Putin's way of staying in power. I mean, the standard of living in Russia is going down, 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 but he's flexing his muscles in these foreign affairs and saying, look, you know, we got, we're, I'm the topic of discussion in these, you know, American presidential debates. Look, isn't that cool? And that's working. So, um, but, you know, I, I think that um, defeating ISIS is going to take time. I've got a special section on my website where, um, first of all, there's Islam and there's Islamism. Islam are people who are really are Muslims. Mm -hmm. They're not a problem at all. It's the phonies who claim to be Muslims who are really terrorists who just want to kill people. And, you know, we need, to, we need the help of real Muslims to defeat terrorism. We can't let our country become like France, I hate to say it, but, uh, you know, they got an us and them type society, which is, that's going to, that's going to be a real problem. So we need to, we need to continue uh, to accept people of all faiths in our, in our country. And it's going to take many years to defeat terrorism in general. It's not just ISIS, you know, before there was Al-Qaeda. Al the name is going to change in, in the faces, but it's going to be the same thing. But I've got some articles on my website by a guy named um, Andrew Basevich, who's a West Point grad, lost a son in Iraq. He's, I think he's a genius. I don't know where he's teaching now. I think at Princeton. Or, but he has such in-depth analysis about terrorism and foreign policy. If you, if you can, go to my website and read these articles. And he wrote, a, he wrote a heartbreaking article that was in a newspaper years ago when he lost his son. And I, I, I actually called him or wrote to him and said, you know, I really feel for you. But he is a genius when it comes to the international affairs, especially terrorism. And, you know, this is going to take years. It's going to take a lot of thought. It's going to take spe special forces. The traditional military of tanks is going to, that doesn't, isn't going to play a role. I mean, there's going to be James Bond type spying. And we should only spy on American citizens if you get a court order that allows it where terrorism is suspected. I mean, we've got to protect our individual rights. And uh, we can do that. We, we, we've got FISA courts that uh, protect individuals. We need to use them. And um, so and this is going to be a long struggle, but it's mainly a struggle within, um, within Islam to weed out the, the people who are phonies from the real mm -hmm. uh, Muslims. And we have to be very prudent about it. And you know, Johnny, I agree with Jim Barksdale. Johnny Isaacson <laughs> said this coalition of the willing well, look, look what happened with Iraq. I don't know if any of you remember. I remember 2003, after the, you know, we blew out their military, I heard one guy, a former general, said, this is like uh, the Dallas Cowboys playing a ninth grade football team, talking about the two militaries. <laughs> and, uh, but then you know, I remember afterwards, like, there was this big void. And it was like, did anybody plan for this aftermath that we knew was coming? And I remember there was about a month where everyone was like, <laughs> we put, I think it was Bremer was involved. And it was just bizarre. So these things aren't as simple as Johnny Isaacson says, we're going to put together a coalition of the willing. That sounds like a crusade where you're going to go through. Let's face it, these terrorists are hiding among innocent civilians, amongst women and children. This isn't like World War II where you're going to go and you know, land a bunch of Marines on an island where it's all Japanese soldiers and you just crush, kill, and destroy everybody right in front of you and you don't have to think twice about it. You know, for every, every innocent person you kill, any one of their survivors is going to hate you. And you've got you to think through these things. So it's not, it's not uh, as Johnny Isaacson describes, a coalition of the willing. I, I hear that. I, it reminds me of the Crusades, and, and they didn't really work out all that great. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. With that said, that is our final question for tonight. Of course, I want to thank you for being here and having this conversation with us. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
So that closes out our forum for, for tonight. I want to thank everybody for coming out and listening. Um, if you have any questions, I am here to talk about the American Democracy Project and what we are here for. And once again, I want to remind everyone to go vote. Your voice matters. Thank you. Thank you. All right, thanks a lot. And that concludes this special broadcast of the American Democracy Project at Georgia College's town hall meeting with the Democratic and Libertarian candidates vying for U.S. Senate. Thank you for spending a portion of your evening with us here on Milledgeville Matters. And don't forget to get out and make your voice heard. Go vote in early voting through this Friday or on Election Day, Tuesday, November 8th.